Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Amen. Well, it's January and 2020 is finally over. Was it anything like you imagined it would be when you thought about this iconic year as a teen in the early two, 2000s thinking about this year? It's not for me. But here we are, the start of a new year. The excitement of Christmas is over, it's behind us, and the hope of a new year is in front of us. And it reminds me of a road trip. You know how it goes. You spend a few days or weeks or maybe just the night before, I don't know, uh, packing your bags, checking your lists, making your plans, racing around excitedly, looking forward to what is to come. That's kind of like Advent and Christmas season. The anticipation, the preparation. Christmas prepares us for the rest of the year because it starts us off with a God who became flesh. And then you pack up the car and we have to be careful that we don't pack up our devotion with our Christmas tree and our Advent wreath. So we pack it up and we bring what we need for the journey in the front of the car. Uh, and it's a jigsaw puzzle, but we get it all in there and we double check the list again. You stop at the gas station to fill up and you are on your way. That's the new year, right? And for the first 10 minutes, you are pumped. You've got your snacks and your audiobooks or your music and the kids have their movie on in the back. And then that first hour passes and you're still driving and the kids are starting to ask for a different movie and the music's maybe starting to loop and you're not hungry, but you're still just munching on those snacks. And a few more hours pass and you run out of things to talk about and you're staring out the window. And sure you make stops along the way and those are the high points, those sights that we get to see, those are breathtaking and wonderful. But then we're back in the car again and on to the next thing. Why is there so much traffic? When's lunch? Are we there yet? What's the next stop again? And if you're like me, that's where I find myself in mid-January. I know it's coming. It happens every year. The hype wears off and it's just driving. There are bills to pay and dinners to make. You may have clients to see and schedules to keep and lunches to pack and classes to teach and hardships to face. And those things, you have to just keep plodding away. Our passage today is from John 1, and it has a surprising amount to say about this very thing. It's a familiar passage. I even touched on it the last time I preached. It was the New Testament passage to go along with my sermon in Daniel. And it is a grand introduction to the eternal word of God, defining who Jesus is in relationship to God the Father as both being with and in nature God. It attempts to give us a proper reverence for this great cosmic being that we cannot quite comprehend. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. John calls Jesus the word that was in the beginning, that was both with God and was God. 
This is one of the many places we get our understanding of the Trinity, that God the Father and God the Son are separate and distinct and yet entirely connected. The Nicene Creed puts it of the same substance. The word or the logos in Greek can also be translated as reason. Jesus is the embodiment of all of God's revelation, his wisdom and reason personified. Everything he ever wanted us to know, see, feel in a tangible package. The Jews had an understanding of God's wisdom personified as distinct from God, but it was still a created thing. And Jesus was different than that. He was distinct from God and yet was God. This word existed before all things, made all things, sustained all things. John is careful to explain that the word is not a created thing, but rather the creator itself. But the word, that's a concept to us, an idea. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, isn't it? So John offers another description of Jesus. He also calls him the light that gives life to men and illuminates the darkness. He calls in an eyewitness in John the Baptist to corroborate this description. John came to testify discern, uh, concerning him, Jesus, so that others would believe. John the disciple goes to great lengths to point out that John the Baptist was not a, or was a human and a normal one, nothing divine about him in contrast to the eternal word of God, the true light that is coming into the world. Now, I think light is a little less nebulous than word. Um, at least we can see it and experience it, but it's still metaphorical. Throughout this first chapter, John is giving the origin, if you will, not that Jesus has a beginning, um, and the nature of Christ, definitively showing that he is God. But he's also giving context within which to understand verse 14 and the incarnation that we talk about at Christmas time. It was the God described above who was made flesh. This specific understanding of God is necessary to understand who it was that stepped into his own creation to experience it. This word and light is now flesh. John no longer talks about him as a concept or a metaphor, but a real life human being, a divine one quite beyond our comprehension, but flesh and blood that walks and talks. He lives and breathes. God knew our finite minds could only understand word or light so well. He foresaw that we would need a tangible, real thing to get it. It's one of the many side benefits of the grand word made flesh rescue plan that the Trinity conspired to pull off. Can you imagine this marriage of eternal word, light of life, to human flesh. One commentary describes it as this. Christ was conceived in a womb he created, born in the arms of his own creature, breathing his own air, treading his own ground, supported by his own substances, the things to which he gave being. And he wedded himself to our flesh, our tangible existence. And the kicker is that the 
creation didn't even recognize him, right? His world that he intricately designed didn't welcome and greet him. In Luke 2, if you watch the children's uh, Christmas reading, we hear that the angels herald his coming because they get it, don't they? They know who he is and they understand. And the shepherds were paying attention because, I mean, if a whole legion of angels shows up in the middle of the dark sky, you're going to pay attention. And John the Baptist is announcing his coming, but where is everybody else? Where's the rest of humanity? I think we struggle to see Christ in normalcy because we have divorced the greatness of God from his humanity that he wed together. We talk about the word in the beginning and we forget that at the end of this passage, this great God was made flesh. Now at first glance, John 1 is a big philosophical theological idea in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Oh, that's, that's huge. Well, what do I do with that? How does that meet me here in the middle of my January doldrums? It's tempting to say that because we serve such a great God, those doldrums don't matter. Just push through and focus on Jesus. It's a nice Christian platitude that God is bigger than my problems. But what if there's more to it than that? We have this great juxtaposition. How do we rectify the eternal word of God with him being made flesh and living a typical human life, albeit without sin? There's currently a TV series being made about the life of Christ focusing on the disciples. It's called The Chosen. And they flesh out these characters and they add historic fiction to it, but they stick to the spirit of the gospel. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, it might be worth watching. One of the most striking scenes for me is in the third episode. Jesus has yet to begin miracles. He has yet to call any disciples. And he returns to his campsite outside of Capernaum after selling some crafts in town. And it shows him quietly starting a fire from kindling and stoking it, cutting up his food, cooking it over the fire that he's tending, slowly eating it, drinking out of a cup. He places another log on the fire. He covers his food for the night. He hangs up his outer garment. He takes off his sandals and washes his feet. He says a prayer and he climbs into bed. It's profoundly mundane. And sometimes I, I like to think, you know, Jesus did all these miracles for everyone. Couldn't he just shoot some finger guns and snap his fingers and fire appears, right? But the truth is probably much closer to this scene. It's profoundly mundane like driving between the stops of a road trip. The Trinity comes up with this grand rescue plan. And then can you just feel our human impatience to hurry up and get to the good part when he became an embryo? Growing in a womb for nine excruciating months before he's even born. And then the humility of having to learn to sit up, cutting teeth, 
falling down constantly while trying to learn to walk. I have an 18 month old, so that's very real to us right now. Trying to get his parents to understand what he was all about. Apprenticing under Joseph. He doesn't even get to the good part for another 30 years. And we get impatient in our road trip in the first hour. But Jesus doesn't get in a hurry. He doesn't rush through those 30 years. He is fully present in each moment. He doesn't magic himself to the cross or better yet the resurrection and ascension. He could have, but those things were only the most visible part of this grand rescue plan. The unseen part, which is still crucial to our salvation was his daily life. One commentary puts it this way, the glory of Christ was not in the pomp and worldly grandeur, but was in the holiness, grace, and truth of his daily life. It was his daily obedience and perseverance of a sinless life that made his sacrificial death mean anything. If he had not lived every second of every minute of every hour in perfect holiness, then his death means nothing. If he had been impatient with his brothers, hello, who has siblings? If he had talked back to his mother, if he had dealt poorly with one of his clients, if he'd built something subpar, acted out of insecurity, just once, he could, have, he could not have been the perfect sacrifice sufficient for our salvation. If anyone should have been able to skip the doldrums, if anyone had a right to, the eternal word of God certainly did. But instead, he chose before the foundation of the world to include this in his redemption story, to make his daily life crucial to the plan. He could have chosen another way, but he doesn't. He chooses to step into his creation and live every second of every day. So what does that mean for us? What do we do with that information? You know, the new year comes with these grand hopes and big resolutions. But by mid-January, we are shocked back into reality that life is still very much the same old, same old. COVID is still here. And we can resent that, wishing for those big moments and the high points, trying to fast forward through the boring parts. We look to Jesus, though, and see his example of choosing to embrace the small moments. We can see that our own holiness comes not in grand gestures or major decisions, but in small, quiet moments, in the stress of the daily grind. What if we change our thinking about this driving? What if the boring parts matter to God? Does that change how we think about it? Rather than being monotonous and a waste of time, something to hurry past and get to the good part, what if it's actually important? What if we view those, those moments as opportunities for the Holy Spirit to continue the process of sanctifying us, of making us holy, shaping us to be more like Jesus, as an opportunity to be present not thinking about the next thing or stuck on the last, but right here in the car, feeling the seat behind us, 
the air conditioner blowing on us, being present with those around us. Tish Harrison Warren says in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Christ's ordinary years are part of our redemption story. If Christ spent time in obscurity, then there is infinite worth found in obscurity. She goes on to say that she can get drunk on these big ideas, but the big ideas, she says, are born out, lived, believed, and enfleshed in the small moments of our day, in the places, seasons, homes, and communities that compose our lives. That is to say that the word became flesh because that's how the big idea of the rescue plan actually gets, out, gets played out in reality. Not by skipping those things, but being in the very fabric of them. Rather than pushing against the monotony of life, what if we lean into it and choose it, see it as valuable? What if we seek it out and meet Jesus in those moments? <clears throat> I like tangible things. I'm a visual and often tactile learner, so I like to have concrete ideas for things to get what it really means in real life. So here's one for you, one of many. I hate doing the dishes. From the time I was five and my mom found a step stool for me, I was washing dishes. They were my chore. And we didn't have a dishwasher. I was the dishwasher. I remember them taking forever. Everyone else got to leave the table and go play and I had to wash the dishes. I wanted to hurry and get to the good part. And when we moved, we gained a dishwasher, but I still had to scrub each dish and load it because as everyone knows, you have to wash the dishes before you can wash the dishes. It was tedious and it was frustrating. And as a, an adult, I still struggle. My sink is nearly always full of dishes, despite my husband's best efforts. It is the first thing that falls apart when my family gets busy. And it is as soon as they are clean and the dishwasher is empty, we eat again. It feels like an exercise in futility. At the end of the long day, it is what is standing between me and the good part. Watching some Mandalorian, eating some ice cream, which would make another dish. And I resent them. I wish I could just snap my fingers and they would be done. But what if I didn't see them as a nuisance, something to hurry past and get over, something to be avoided if possible? What if I approached them with Jesus in mind? More than just serving my family or meeting a need, what if I saw them, the dishes themselves, as an instrument of sanctification in my own heart? A humbling of my prideful heart that dishes are not beneath me a means by which to practice presence without my mind being a thousand miles or five months down the road. A tangible reminder of my own imperfections that must be washed again and again and again by confession and partaking in the Lord's Supper. You know, I rather like, dislike New Year's resolutions because they often leave me wanting in mid-January or early February. They're usually too big to touch reality. And I firmly believe that you can start anything on any month of the year, like deciding to run a 5K in mid-September on a Tuesday. There's nothing magical about January. 
And the dishes are not a particularly spiritual thing, like reading through the Bible in a year or praying an hour a day. But we are physical beings and our physical bodies influence our spiritual selves more than we can even realize. So this is not a resolution and it doesn't seem particularly spiritual, but this year I want to join the Holy Spirit's transformation of my heart by doing the dishes with intentionality. And I want to meet Jesus at the sink. So I must ask you a question. In what mundane, ordinary, boring part of your life would you like to meet Jesus this year? Or maybe even just today? Think about that. Because he is the word who is made flesh. And he did the mundane things because they mattered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a big and great God, but that you also stepped into your creation to be here with us, to be present with us. You didn't skip through the hard parts and you didn't rush when there were people around who needed you. I pray that we'd be reminded of how you lived your life with presence and intentionality. Help us to do the same. In your name we pray. Amen.